Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 1st, 2017. This is episode 1943 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Wednesday. Wednesday is usually interview day on a typical Wednesday, and this is a typical Wednesday, so you're going to get an interview. Interview today, I will have with me Peter Allen on off-grid living and regenerative farming. Peter makes his living today full-time as a farmer on his off-grid farm called Mastodon Valley Farm. Uh, he practices uh, practices that that he learned practices practices right that he learned that's not a misspeak he practices practices uh, that he learned uh, by and large through working with none other than Mark Shepard like silvo pasture and rotational grazing and cool things like that he's going to be on the air with us in just a bit to talk about all of that and more and I think we'll try to make sure that we look at what Peter's doing and we say if you have the dream of a big off grid farm like Peter has then you should be able to learn from this. But if you want your own small little homestead the size of what Jack has or an urban homestead, you should still be able to learn from and be inspired by the work that Peter is doing and how he got to where he is. Because he's in a place where a lot of people go, I want to be there. If you want to be somewhere, what you do is you look at people who are there and say, how did you get there? Specifically people whose answer isn't, well, my father was a farmer and left the farm to me. Now, that doesn't, that's not as easy as it, it's made out to be. Because a lot of people had the farm left to them and failed as farmers because they never learned from their parents. A lot of people had the farm left to them and just didn't want to farm and, and, and sold it off. But if you don't have that opportunity, if you don't have that on-ramp, then that doesn't really help you, does it? But when you hear somebody say, well, I had a dream and this is what I wanted to do and these are the steps that I took to get there, then that's a roadmap. That's an on-ramp for you. You might not follow the exact same path, but you can learn from that experience. And the more people you hear like that, the more ways you find your own way to what you're looking for. So that's as much as we're going to talk about growing food today, we're also talking about that. How to identify that which you want to do with your life and how to get there. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1943, and we are literally smack dab in the middle of the Second World War. At least the United States is part in it. We have a lot of stuff today, as you imagine, the war is dominating it. We have the bridge on the River Kwai, and we have in World, on World War II events and popular media. Those are our two main segments. We have notable births. This year in film, this year in music, in other news, and World War II in review. As I did yesterday, because so much is going on with the war, rather than read a segment, I'm going to read all the bullet points that go into World War II. Let us first take a look at the other things, though. Notable birth. 
uh, Leo Walshy, co-founder of Poland Solidarity uh, Union. He is essentially uh, he is essential to throwing off Soviet rule. I probably pronounced that completely wrong. John Kerry's born this year, living Vietnam War protester, presidential candidate for the Democrats, Secretary of State. He is not essential. Newt Gingrich, living U.S. congressman, Republican, and author of he will uh, an author. He will be essential to returning a Republican majority to Congress. Bob Woodward, living journalist, team with Carl Bernstein. They did essential reporting on the Watergate scandal. Oliver North, living Marine lieutenant colonel and journalist during the Iran Contra investigation. He defended himself admirably. And in entertainment, Chevy Chase, living Saturday Live, Fletch, and Foul Play. Robert De Niro, also living, The Deer Hunter, Wag the Dog, and Meet the Fockers. Christopher Walken, living, The Deer Hunter, Wayne's World 2, and Click. Christopher Walken also brought us more cowbell, right? And in music, all living, George Harrison, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and the essential Barry Manilow. Um, we're getting to the point now where we're going to start probably pointing out who's not with us anymore, right? We've, got, we've come so far in history that most of the people that we talk about being born, at least are still with us. This year in film, The Song of Bernadette, an inspiring religious film, Casablanca, a rush job that became a classic, and Destination Tokyo, the House Committee on Un-American Activities investigates the screenwriters for movie dialogue sympathetic to communism. Burn the witch! Oh, pardon me. I'm not going to play it today. I'm not going to play the Monty Python clip. I promise. I'm thinking about it. This year in music, Paper Doll by the Mills Brothers, That Old Black Magic by the Glenn Miller Band, and Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition, written in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor last December. One of those is the number one song of the the year, and we play at the end of the show today. You'll have to wait to see which one it is. In other news, the Slinky is introduced. Abu Hoffman takes LSD. He records his experience for science since LSD was considered a medicine at the time. And the Great Depression is officially declared over. I'm not sure I would have noticed it if the government hadn't told me rationing is in full swing. World War II in review. January, the Pentagon is dedicated. It took a year and a half to complete. How long do you think it would take them to build a building that size today? Really, just think about what they used to get done. February, the Bottle of Stalingrad. Uh, the German Sixth Army surrenders to the Soviets. And the four ch uh, chaplains go down with the Dorster. Last seen, they were linked arm in arm praying. Guadalcanal, Japanese forces get the boot. And the U.S. War Office censors movies. March, German Wolfpack U-boats sink 22 ships. April, Nazi troops enter the Warsaw Ghetto. The Jews fight back. No hope. May, RAF dam busters. Various dams are destroyed by bouncing bombs across the surface of the water. Yeah, really. Uh, the Memphis Bell completes its 25 bombing missions intact. It was The reason that's important, that was the first plane that finished its tour of duty, so to speak, where the crew was like, okay, you're done now, you can, you can stop. Yeah, up until then, no plane ever made it back through its 25 bombing runs for its tour of duty. Rosie the Riveter appears. We all know Rosie. Dr. Joseph Mengel becomes medical officer for Auschwitz. He is called the Angel of Death. June, the Zoot Suit riots in East L.A. erupt. U.S. servicemen chase Mexicans through my grandfather's hotel. That's Alex Shrugg who writes these for us. My uncle is a Zoot Suiter, believe it. If you don't know what a Zoot Suiter is, uh, think uh, stereotypical uh, 1970s pimp in a Starsky and Hutch uh, thing. It kind of kind of sort of like that. Uh, July, the Battle of Kursk, 80 tanks total. The Germans lose big time. 
Uh, General Patton and General Montgomery land forces in Sicily. Hamburg, Germany is leveled. Benito Mussolini, the Italian prime minister, is arrested. The Italians are not happy with him. August, PT-109 is rammed by the Japanese destroyer. John F. Kennedy and his men rescued from a nearby island. It will make a good movie. September, mainland Italy is invaded and Italy surrenders. German paratroopers rescue Mussolini. October, the Philadelphia experiment. The USS Eldridge is rendered invisible. The Navy denies it ever happened, but rumors can be useful. In November, four bombs are dropped on Vatican City. The aircraft are never identified. The UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration is created. The agreement is signed by the White House. Thanks, FDR. Operation Overlord. FDR, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin meet in Tehran to plan the invasion of Normandy. That would be Tehran, Iran, for those of you that aren't familiar with that little name. And in December, General Dwight David Eisenhower becomes Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And as real as it is, it's fixing to get real, real here soon. Anyway, just realize what we're hearing, and as long as these segments are during this time, is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what's going on and the sacrifices being made and the lives being lost and the destruction being wrought all over the planet. Um, and we're kind of mentioning it here and there, but but there's a real heavy rationing of many things here in the U.S. And those Zoot Suit riots, that's what they were all about. See, these 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 young Hispanics running around in these Zoot Suits while everybody was sacrificing and giving stuff up, we're seen as unpatriotic. That's what kicked off the, the it was racist baited or racist based, but that was what was the trigger, right? So you already have a racial tension, but then this trigger was, and then they have the audacity to be wearing these expensive fabrics when, you know, people are giving up fabrics for the war effort. It's a, it's a time in America that We don't really look into the history of what was going on here very much. We might look at the things like rounding up the Japanese and all, but we don't look at the life of the average person that was far different than it is today, or far different than we even imagine it, let's say, from a similar time period like 1950. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you... I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. All right, with that, I want to introduce our special guest, Peter Allen. Peter is an awesome guy. He brings his ecological background to his farming practices. He uh, and Before he was a farmer, he spent a decade at UW-Madison teaching courses in ecology and complex systems theory. Eventually, he decided he wanted to live a lifestyle consistent with what he was teaching in many ways and wanted to become a farmer. Spent some time with a guy you may have heard of, Mark Shepard, and today he runs this farm. It's called Mastodon Valley Farm. 
Uh, it's an off-grid farm, and it is his full-time endeavor. He spends an awful lot of time helping other people set their land up to do the same thing as well. And with that, hey, Peter, man, I'm really glad to have you today with us at the Survival Podcast. Hey, man, it's good to be here. Hey, I really love having you on. I love what you're doing. Um, I first learned about you through Permaculture Voices, and the work that you're doing is awesome. But there's a lot of people in this audience that maybe have not heard of you uh, or hadn't heard you when you're on before. Um, let's start out with who the heck is Peter Allen? You're, you're spacing out in study hall in like 11th grade, and how does that lead you to being basically a, a regenerative farmer and a guy living off-grid? How does that head you down that pathway? Yeah, man. Well, um I mean, I grew up, uh, I was actually pretty lucky. My uh, parents decided to homeschool me when I was little, so I uh, didn't get subjected to public education as a kid, which was a bonus. Uh, we moved around a lot, so I actually, now I've been living in my little off-grid shack for a couple years, which is longer I've lived anywhere, so we moved around a lot, uh, and I ended up going to high school in Evansville, Indiana, a pretty small, conservative town, uh, and I, was, I had a pretty sheltered upbringing. I didn't know kind of what was going on in the world. Ended up going to Indiana University for college, wanted to broaden my horizons, I guess, and uh, learned a, a lot about, uh, you know, where food comes from and sort of the state of our sort of global ecosystems, and that got me kind of concerned. Uh, and so I started studying uh, environmental science and ecology and uh, graduated from college, had no idea what to do, so I went to grad school, uh, got a graduate, a uh, master's degree uh, studying sort of energy use and uh, complex systems, um, and uh, really interested in sort of ecological restoration. Uh, so I did a lot of restoration ecology there in graduate school. I started a PhD program, um, and I was pretty unhappy with Uh, modern strategies for ecosystem restoration. It's all about invasive species. It's all about sort of making a list of what species, plant species you think should be there and what shouldn't be there and, and going from there, which wasn't economically uh, helpful or uh, it just didn't make sense unless you just had a lot of money to pour at a, at a very fairly small project. So I kind of went on to do a PhD kind of studying our native ecosystems um, And I was kind of teaching full time and enjoying it, but sort of like realizing that uh, a career in academics wasn't going to be very fulfilling. I was kind of seeing that in order to restore the ecosystems uh, in, in a way that was helpful for the ecology, it had to happen in a way that was economically generative. Uh, and so I kind of realized that we needed to farm if we wanted to do ecosystem restoration. Uh, we had to have a kind of economic uh, uh, cash flow out of the operation. So kind of got the idea to start farming. Um, I was about a year or so away from finishing my Ph.D. when I got the opportunity to sort of access land. And I kind of had to make a decision uh, whether to stay in the academy, get my degree, and then hope uh, I would still have the option to get land after that. Or like, why the heck am I getting a Ph.D. if I just want to farm anyway? Uh, and I went and, you know, uh, sought counsel from friends and family and literally every single person in my life told me I should get the PhD, worry about farming later. You can't make any money at farming anyway. <laughs> um, and, uh, against all of that, I went ahead and, and quit school and got on land and, uh, have never looked back. So that's, that's how I got to here. Very cool, man. Before we, we move forward from there. There's just something you said there when you're talking about all the, the academic stuff and all and invasive species concerns. 
And I've never been a guy to get too uptight about that. I think you've probably heard the saying by Bill Mollison, I use 100% native species. They're all native to planet Earth. That's right. But I also don't want to be I don't want to be the jerk that introduces something into an ecosystem that does become a problem, you know. Yeah. You look at what kudzu has done in Georgia for instance, it's, you know. Yeah. So I've always researched what I'm going to use. So I come across this plant called autumn olive and it's the demon plant from Satan according to some people. Yeah. And so I, I before I just write it off, I figure I'm going to see what, you know, various experts have to say on it. And I find this paper from the state of Texas. This is the primary problem it causes in Texas is that it so improves the fertility that native plants that live in low fertility are, are, are no longer able to grow there. Not that it chokes it out like something like privet, but it's too good at improving fertility. Yeah, right. And my brain just hurts when I hear something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, and that's, that's the logic of the sort of modern conservation movement. It's not, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you kind of step back and look at the big picture, and it's like, wait a second, you mean humans degraded this landscape, a plant came in to solve that problem, and we didn't have to do anything to get it there, it just came there on its own accord, and now that's a problem because it's solving the problem that we created in the first place? It's like, uh... Yeah, yeah, or juniper is, is a, inv listed as an invasive species in sagebrush uh, sage, uh, steppe environments, but yet juniper is native to sagebrush steppe environments. There's just an abundance of it because we screwed it up. And it's just that kind of thinking. I don't think we can solve those problems with the current thinking, and it takes a radically different approach, which actually ain't radical. It just seems radical because it's so divergent from the mainstream thought. Yeah, you know, a lot of the so-called invasive shrubs, at least in our like eastern ecosystems, a lot of them are actually native. That's like you're talking about. It's really bizarre. Like, we have strictly... Prickly ash, which is a native species, but they call it invasive because it forms these like dense patches. But it's they form dense patches on degraded soil, and they over the course of their lifespan, the the the, the plant themselves is very temporary. Like it grows really thick, and then it, it literally rots from the inside out, and then it's gone, and then it's improved the soil, and something else comes in. Forest but, secession? No. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that a problem? That's just nature working. Um, not to mention the fact that almost all animals will eat it. Um, so, yeah. Stupid reparative plant that feeds animals. Anyway, um, so you ended up for a while at New Forest Farm with Mark Shepard. How did how did that come about? Yeah, man. Well, I was so I was doing this PhD research. I was looking at our uh, native oak savannas uh, and sort of researching the history and ecology, sort of deep history. Uh, and then I was and I was looking a lot at Native American uses um, and how they were burning and managing the grazing animal population, the planting trees and eating nuts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of when I came to the conclusion that like we needed to do this as a farming enterprise. Like the savanna is a model for a farm uh, that we need to go out and build these farms. So I kind of come up come to that point and I built out a model. Uh, for a farm that this was like part of my dissertation, basically saying we need to integrate multi-species rotational grazing with diverse tree crops uh, to create a savanna ecosystem that's managed by grazing animals that's profitable. Uh, and I had kind of come up with this model, and I was hanging out at a bar in Madison with a couple uh, restoration friends, and uh, I kind of pitched this idea, and they were like, "Oh, that's kind of like what Mark Shepard does." And I was like, "Who's Mark Shepard? I wasn't into permaculture." Uh, and, and so the guy was like, dude, you gotta go, Mark, you gotta go Google Mark Shepard, check this guy out. He's doing exactly what you're talking about. 
So I went home and Googled him, and it was pretty pretty wild. Like checking out his website, uh, you could have if you had looked at the introduction to my dissertation and his website, like you couldn't have told the difference. They were like the same thing using the same words. So I knew right away that uh, we were on the same wavelength about uh, the state of the world. And uh, so I called him up, told him told him what was going on, and asked. Hey, can I come out and do a case study for my dissertation? You know, like so far, it's all just this crazy idea in my head. But you've been doing it for 20 years. Let me come out and do a case study. So he said, "Sure, come on out." So I came out, and luckily, I mean, he's only a couple hours away from where I was in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so I went out to his place in May. I guess that would have been like five years ago, and uh, was there for a couple weeks. I was there taking data, like looking at his yields, looking at the plant diversity, looking at the birds, looking at the whole ecosystem thing. And uh, it was in May. So in May around here is when the grass is growing gangbusters. I mean, it's like serious grass growth. Uh, and Mark's got a lot of trees in the ground, like hundreds of thousands of trees in the ground. So he's out mowing between his rows of hazelnuts to stay on top of it. And after a couple of weeks, I'm like watching him. I'm like, dude, like, uh, you know, you could get some cows, right? Like you won't have to waste all your time on a tractor. You don't have to burn all this diesel fuel. And at the end, you get beef. It's like a win, win, win. And uh, he's like, oh, well, you know, I travel a lot. I'm gone all the time. I don't have – I can't take care of animals. Uh, he's like, why don't you get some cows? Well, I was only planning on being there for like a week or two, and I was like staying in a tent. <laughs> and I like call my girlfriend back in Madison. I'm like, what do you think if I like buy some cows and just like keep camping out here for a while? <laughs> she thought I was a little crazy, but uh, uh, I ended up uh, – I didn't have any money, and it's kind of funny, considering my current occupation is uh, selling meat. I was actually a vegetarian for like eight years, um, but I had some friends that were big beef eaters, so I, I called them up and was like, hey, if I raise some beef and do it grass-fed, would you guys give me a deposit now so I can buy the, buy the cows, and then you know, you'll get your beef at the end of the season? So I got enough people to pitch in some money. I was able to buy like six steers, uh, brought them on at Mark's. I was actually able to convince my wife to come out and sleep in the tent with me, uh, not the whole time, but part-time. And then, uh, yeah, then the next year, we actually, Mark invited us to, my wife and I, to live in a little shack they got kind of down by their homestead, uh, stayed a winter there. And we were like, well, you know, if we if we want to start farming one day out here in the country, we need to know what a what it is to live through like a Wisconsin winter. Let's do this. So we stayed in that that little cabin and kind of made plans for the next season. And that's kind of when we started our meat CSA. We started uh, getting customers lined up. And then the next season we hit the ground running hard and we brought in like 20 head of cattle, 20 pigs, a bunch of sheep and, and, uh, and poultry and started the meat CSA there. And then we uh, were there that season. And then, and then following that season is when we, uh, when we got our own land and, and moved out here. Can you talk about how you, you ended up being able to buy land? That's a, a big thing with a lot of young people now that say they want this life. And right. um, sometimes, first I would just say, if that's you, rewind the podcast about three minutes and re-listen to what Peter just said, because there's something for being willing to sacrifice to get what you want. But then eventually you got to get to the point where, you know, you're basically doing a form of sharecropping there, right? And and, yeah. and you yeah. wanted to have your own... It's like being, you know, even if you're if you're first mate on a ship, eventually you want your own ship that you can have the con of. So how did you make that transition? Well, I think being willing to sacrifice is dead on. I mean, we were we my I mean, and my wife gets full credit here because she I mean, it's one thing for a, a, like, you know, 
32-year-old dude to do this, like live in a, in a shack. But to, to, to bring my wife into it, she was just a, a, a rock star. Um, but, uh, you, but basically being willing to live, you know, we had a dream of, of getting onto a relatively large land base and making a living off of that land base. But we didn't have any, any resources or any money between the two of us. So we knew we were going to have to, like, you know, sacrifice to do it. And the funny thing was is that when we we were living in a like a 2000 square foot uh, apartment in like the nicest neighborhood in Madison like on a park like like if you ask any sort of like uh Madison person like grad school student what's the like block you want to live on they would have said our block we had like the best living situation you could imagine uh and then we moved from that to a like a 10 by 12 shack um with no lights or electricity or anything or running water and uh, and I think, you know, what we ended up doing in order to be able to access land is we put our time in the trenches, uh, living with nothing and, and getting our hands dirty and, 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 and raising food and figuring out a market and selling it. And then um, it actually we were planning on borrowing money to, to access land and it, it, the, the universe conspired all kind of. And this was right in the period of time when I was had to make the decision uh, about quitting the Ph.D. program. My wife. Uh, her family got uh, sold a share of a family farm and had uh, an inheritance early um, that uh, we ended up partnering with my wife's parents to buy the land. Uh, so we didn't have to actually have to go into debt to buy the land, which it was one of those things. It was like, I, I got to decide right. Was, as soon as I decided to quit the PhD, like the whole universe opened up and it was like, boom, boom, boom. Within like six months, we were on land kind of debt free. Uh, it all it all worked out really well for us. But I think the key to being able to form that family partnership um, is the fact that we had sort of shown that we were we were willing to do what it took to, like, make our dreams reality. Uh, and we had all of our skin in the game. I mean, I quit my Ph.D. I had like no money in the bank, but I had some cows. You know, I had like some fencing. I was like I had a little bit of a, a cash flow going. And we kind of turned that into a full-fledged business that's now, you know, supporting our family and everything. But uh, could, could, could you have imagined if you had proposed this and, and your entire experience with cattle at this point had been, well, I'm a Ph.D. student and there's cattle in my book, right? Exactly. There's no way they would have agreed no to way. that. There's no way. If I, you know, and, you know, I spent 10 years almost in graduate school. And in graduate school, you don't do shit. You, know, you just sit around and talk about things, you know. You come up with good ideas, but you don't actually do anything. So, like, you know, when I when I hear, like, you know, it's funny because we have people uh, emailing me, you know, asking to come intern here. And I'm way more likely to to want to talk to somebody that's got real world experience on farms rather than somebody that's got like five degrees. but have no experience because because I know that guy. I was that guy, you know, sure. and I had to turn it around and actually get my hands dirty and admit that I didn't know what the hell I was doing and uh, figure it out myself. But uh But yeah, I, I get a lot of young people, you know, asking me like, how do you, how do, how can I get land? How can I get land? You know, I don't have any money, and it's like our generation. And I speak kind of like, I'm kind of like, I'm a little older than the millennial generation, but but if you look at the millennials, like people younger than me, like we have like no money. If you look at where the wealth is <laughs> in the United States, it is not in our hands. So how old are you? I'm 34. Yeah, when I was 34, I didn't have money either. <laughs> Like people that want to get out there on land, 
don't have any money and they sure. don't have prospects of getting money. And all, but but the thing is, is the the wealth is in the cities and it's in the older generations, it's in the baby boomer generations. And so we can make those connections between generations. But in order to do that, it's got to be more than just like a a good idea or like a YouTube video you saw. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go do this thing that I saw somebody do on YouTube. It's like no, like you got to get your hands dirty, get in the trenches, and show that you got skin in the game that you're willing to like make this because it's, it's a life. Farming is a lifestyle choice. It's not just a business opportunity. It's not just a, a, a land care thing. It's a total lifestyle, and you gotta you gotta live the lifestyle in order to be able to to make it happen. So yeah, when I, when I hear your story, I think well, let's say that this the stars didn't align perfectly the way they seem to for you. Had you needed to go the the route of debt to acquire land, and while I hate debt, when you know what you're doing with land, it is a a a, a, a valid leverage tool. Yep. You would have been able to get there because you had filed a Schedule F, you had experience in yep. farming, and I think that there's so many people that they're waiting for the money to be able to farm, and they need to go out and farm so that they can get access to the money, because whether it's a loan officer in a bank or a, a rich relative or a nice old lady that you met that cares about the earth, anybody that's going to put money in your hands so that you can go farm is going to want to know that you can farm. That's right. Right, I mean that's what it's going to come down to. Like, well, I saw this guy on YouTube. It's not something you can put on a, on an application to anybody to ask for their money. It, I would laugh at you and send you away. And I, I think you'd do the same thing if, if uh, you know, if you, you you accidentally won the lottery for a couple hundred million dollars. I'm sure you'd want to do a lot of philanthropy. But if some kid came to you and said, "I want to start a farm because I saw something on YouTube," right. you'd tell him to go get some experience, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. But I have to live in a tent. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that, right? No, and we have people come out. We had a, a couple come to our farm a couple of years ago, and uh, you know they saw my talk at PD two. They got real excited, uh, and they were they were real tough. They were able to live, you know, frugally, and they lived in a yurt at our place. And after the after the season, they kind of saw the reality of the situation. They were like, you know what? Our jobs don't seem that bad now. And I don't want to farm. I think I want to have a homestead and a garden and do my thing. But you know what? The paycheck at the end of the day is pretty nice. And, like, I really appreciated them being honest about that and being sure. like, yeah, you know, like, it, you know, this kind of this kind of lifestyle is certainly not for everyone. So, yeah, definitely. Um, so whenever I talk to successful farmers, ranchers, they always use a lot more business words than, you know, plant varieties, et cetera. Um, and I think there's a lesson there, and one you've used a couple times now is cash flow. Can you talk about how your farm cash flows now? What is the model that enables that? Sure, yeah. I mean, our main um, uh, mechanism for selling meat is through a monthly subscription. So we have people sign up on our website. Uh, for We have different sizes of meat, and we basically mix together beef, pork, lamb, uh, we have chicken in the, in the summer and stuff um, into boxes, and then we actually deliver them to people uh, often straight to their houses. We do have a couple pickup locations in high-density areas, but uh, we do a lot of home delivery. Um, and that's probably like 80% of our uh, revenue comes from the subscription, and then we do sell you know halves and quarters and stuff like that. But for the most part, it all comes through the CSA. You know, a lot of our customers – you know, they're health conscious, they want to eat grass-fed, um, but, you know, they don't want to, like, 
buy a whole cow. You know, they don't want to have a freezer. They live in an apartment in, in town or whatever. They don't have room for a chest freezer. So, you know, we bring them, you know, 10 pounds a month or 20 pounds a month or whatever. Uh, and it, it works out pretty good on our end. Um, you know, you start at looking at the cost side of the cash flow equation. That gets really messy because, you know, we're doing sort of like uh, breeding to finishing. So we've got mm. cows, we're having calves. And so, you know, I mean, we have livestock guardian dogs and, you know, sheep and, and it's, it gets really complicated, but, uh, but yeah, we, um, the, the main way we make money is by selling meat through a uh, subscription. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about the CSA model and it would seem to me that with the somewhat remote location of your property, and the way you're doing things, if you're running a market garden and, and, and doing lettuce and turnips and stuff like that, it probably wouldn't be viable. It's the fact that you're delivering a relatively large amount of a, of a you know, a storable because you can either freeze it or, or what have you once right. it's delivered to you that allows this economic model to work. That this, this would probably not work in your location. And I got no problem with people growing vegetables. We need those too. But I, I just don't think that would be as viable as a CSA in your particular environment. Yeah, you know, out in our area, there are a couple of uh, very successful organic vegetable CSAs, but they went. In order to do it, they have to go really big. Like the, the the guys that are close to us, Driftless Organics, you know, they're they're pushing 70 acres of total crops. They've got you know hundreds of CSA. They do all the major farmers markets. They're their main suppliers to the co-ops, both in Minneapolis and in Madison. They've got their own trucks. Um, you know, they 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 are pretty large scale in order to make it work in our remote location. Um, and so the meat the meat thing works pretty well. Um, for the reasons you mentioned, you know, it's storable. I mean, that, it, it, because it has to stay frozen, it, it gets a little, <laughs> little tricky sometimes in the summer when it, sure. it's 110 degrees. Uh, uh, but for the most part, it's fairly straightforward, uh, and it's a high-value product. Uh, when we first started, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, when we first started, we'd be making deliveries, and I knew that it didn't make sense to go, like, drive all the way to hell to Madison and deliver, like, 60 pounds of meat. Like, th that doesn't pencil out. But we had to go through those growing pains in order to get to the point where we're taking 500 pounds of meat. Um, so, yeah. You develop the market that you're going to sell into. So right. you got to take the first few customers so that the few can turn into a couple and a couple can turn into many. That's exactly right. And you got to be, like... You know, if you just if you look hard at the numbers at the, in the early days, it's like, holy shit, this doesn't work. It's a, it's a bleed, yeah. <laughs> Failing, uh, but uh, you know, you stick with it and grow big enough, and you've got to figure out you know what your numbers are to make that makes it, make it make sense. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the, this model, I, I really like the. You know, we started out as more of a formal CSA where people paid kind of yearly; they paid up front for the yeah. year, uh, like CSAs do, but. Um, we don't even do that anymore. We, we allow that to happen if people want to do it. But for the most part, we just take uh, monthly, you know, we have like automatic subscription, uh, people's credit cards. They punch in their credit cards. It gets charged, you know, 110 bucks a month or whatever. And we bring them 12 pounds a month or whatever. And uh, I got you. I got you. It's really nice because we have a little bit of the seasonal influx of the people that pay yearly. So in the spring when we're buying fencing, we're buying feed, all this kind of stuff. We've got that extra cash. But then when you need it. You know, because that's when your infrastructure repairs because everything gets broken in winter, right? I mean. <laughs> right. Well, and, and right now, I'm, you know, I'm spending a couple hundred bucks a day just to keep my animals alive, you know, yeah. feeding 
So uh, it's really nice to have monthly income and not have to save, uh, you know, twenty thousand dollars from the spring through the winter just so I can, you know, keep my keep my animals alive. I mean, the other thing with livestock, of course, is so let's say I'm a spinach farmer and that spinach is about mature now, and I don't because something happened in my market, I lost a big customer or something. That spinach can't be put into stasis. It it's going to reach a point where it either has to be harvested or it's no longer going to be a valuable product. But if if I was planning on slaughtering those two cows this month and I lose a big customer and I only need to slaughter one of them, I'm not happy, especially if I'm feeding them hay, right? But that cow can just be there until I find a customer for it. It's not perishable. Yep, that's right. So can we talk about the different types of um, livestock that you work with? Sure. So, um, you know, we we have cattle as kind of the main – the main one. So we have a, a herd of uh, uh, red Devon and red Angus crosses. Uh, we've got some other breeds in there too, but those are the main ones. We've got a, a like a red Devon bull, uh, and then about 15, 20 cows, uh, and they're producing 15, 20 calves a year. We usually keep back a couple heifers and then finish off the rest. That's not quite enough beef for our market. You know, we're finishing closer to 20, 25 steers a year, so we buy a few calves from other grass-fed producers um, uh, and then finish them out as well. Uh, we we don't do any breeding of pigs. We just buy feeders in the spring. We don't really have good infrastructure set up for that. We hope to one day, but for now we're happy to just buy feeders. Uh, so we finish 20 to 30 pigs in the summer and then uh, sheep. So we started out with Katahdins because uh, we were focused on uh, meat production uh, and, and had some ewes and, and, la- and had lambs and finished lambs and stuff like that. Uh, we've recently switched. We've gotten into wool production. My wife has gotten into knitting. Uh, it's really cold in Wisconsin, and sure. so wool is, like, pretty freaking awesome. Like, I wear it every day in the winter. And so uh, uh, it's pretty cool. There's a, a woman locally who has a, her own sheep farm. She, she produces wool. She also owns a local wool, uh, like a yarn shop. She just started a wool mill like 10 miles from our farm uh, where she's buying wool locally and processing it into yarn. So we're able to kind of put put our wool into the local fiber shed and then get our own yarn back for my wife to then knit with or to sell or whatever. So we're pretty excited about fiber as a, as a product of our farm as well, uh, as well as meat. So, the, you know, we also get the meat from the lamb. So we're using a breed called Rambolet. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fine, fine sheep, uh, wool breed, kind of like um, closely related to merino. Um, and then, yeah, we do broilers for meat birds. We've got a small laying flock. We haven't gone full fledged into poultry. Uh, maybe in a couple years, we plan to up up our poultry a little bit. But for right now, we're just focusing on the main three: pork, uh, lamb, and beef for our CSA. And then we may roll out some other animals later. But uh, that's kind of the main. The main ones. So I, I know that if if you kind of came through the Mark Shepherd pathway, there's probably a, a silvopasture component or, or some sort of agroforestry going on. So what kinds? How many trees have you planted on your farm? How are you managing that that side of the ecosystem? Yeah, so so we've got about 220 acres. Uh, about half of it is. Uh, Kind of steep wooded hillsides, but but continuous canopy woods, 
And then the other half is like the valley or the ridgetop pastures that are open. So if you if you look at like what's the definition of a savanna, and that's like our whole shtick. We're trying to restore savannas. It's like 50% tree cover. So if you look at our farm as a as an entity, it's half treed, half not treed. So it's like a savanna, except that where you've got trees, it's 100% trees, and where you've yeah. got trees, it's 100% not trees. So our silvo pasture strategy is kind of two pronged. We're both planting tens of thousands of trees and cutting down tens of thousands of trees. Uh, so we're cutting down trees in the forest to open them up, and they're not even forests. They're I would say they're thickets. They're degraded woodlands. They used to be savannas. There's the big, old, open-grown white and red oak trees, um, and then they stopped grazing them 50, 60 years ago when farming got industrialized, and since they've grown up into maples and elms and ash and uh, ironwood trees that, um, you know, grow thickly, and then they choke out what used to be grass on the hillsides is now uh, just bare grass. So you got, like, basically old growth, and then you've got emergent new growth thickets around that old growth, and you're that's you're right. removing that's some right. of that, that, that newer midterm growth to, to allow the animals. Uh, would you you're, – you're probably at, you know, using the pigs, too, to do a lot of that work, I would think. You know, when I first got there, I – that's kind of what I assumed I would do. I was like, oh, yeah, pigs in the woods, Joel Salatin, sure, sure. Except that we're on, like, super, super steep hills. Yeah. You unleash pigs on those hills, and they start turning over that soil. You get rain, that you lose all of it. Uh, so we we quickly realized that, like, pigs weren't going to work on our in our hills. The only time we let pigs up there is when uh, in the fall when the acorns drop. Sure. We let them up in the afternoon and eat acorns and come back down. And when they're doing that, they're not digging. They're just eating the acorns that are on the ground. But if you let them up in the spring or early summer, they start digging, and you really destabilize highly erodible soil. So uh, we're not into that. But uh, but the main strategy is uh, chainsaw and then uh, just just – it's amazing how quickly the regrowth comes on when you when you start thinning these woods out. And if we go one season, if we go in and thin out an area and then don't hit it with animals the next season, it's already grown up back above browse height. Yeah. And then you got. I mean, it's amazing how much labor it takes to clear out. So then you're chainsawing and, and, and cattle managing, right? Because if, I was just thinking that if you don't. If you don't do something, your thicket becomes an impenetrable thicket in two seasons. That's right. And so our main weapons are a chainsaw and then sheep and goats. Okay. It's really steep, so it's hard for our you know big mamas to like get up there and 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 browse around. But it's it's trivial for sheep and goat to to run up there. So um, it actually works really well. They they hit it and it you know, it opens up and uh, it's amazing. You'll go from an area that's got like say a hundred. Uh, stems of 30 foot tall ironwood trees. You clear those out, make a buck up a bunch of firewood, and then the next season you've got, you know, 80 species of grasses and flowers and clovers and, and, and brush and trees that are popping up everywhere with the new light. And the sheep and goats just go nuts, but you gotta stay on top of it. I mean, I gotta hit the same areas two or three times or else, you know, you lose it again. Yeah, stupid food keeps coming back. Um, but there, it's, it's it's a way of looking at the the principle of appropriate technology, where the appropriate technology is a mechanical technology, in this case a chainsaw, and it's also ruminants that are adapted to the scrubby growth of regrowth and to the the hills and won't do damage to uh, the soil. So it's a 
it, it, it's one of those things I think like, so you don't learn that unless you go do it because your inclination is the same mine was. Well, we'll put pigs in there. Well, that's steep slope. And we, we had the same issues at a farm in West Virginia where there was just certain places that were too steep to, to use pigs and it was dangerous for cows. Yeah. Yeah. And sheep and goats just thrive in that environment. I mean, they don't, they don't mind at all. Uh, they actually enjoy, you know, yeah. like playing around on a steep slope. So. Well, they feel safe because they know that their their capabilities in that environment are generally better than their predators are. That's that's actually correct. One, it's actually pretty funny. One time, uh, our sheep and goats got out of our. We have use electronet primarily to move them around, and they got out. And they actually, um, we didn't realize it. They got out in the evening, and we didn't realize it that night. They actually all night were gone. Um, and I noticed it in the morning, so immediately I go and get the dogs, and we go looking for them, and they were like a mile and a half away. <laughs> this is like first thing in the morning, and we're like hiking through the woods, up and down these hills and ridges, and finally we get out to the, 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 the peak of one of these ridges right before it dives down, and there was an old uh, basswood tree that was growing out of this like rock outcrop uh, at a 45-degree angle, and the sheep and goats knew that they needed to, you know, protect themselves from predators. So they actually spent the night up in this tree. They all walked <laughs> and climbed up in this tree. And if you were to measure the distance from the where they were sitting up in the top of this tree down to the ground straight down, it was yeah. like 100 feet. <laughs> wow. Like, totally insane. Um, I mean, I've seen goats with young saplings, and they'll walk the sapling down. Oh, they'll climb yeah, it up it and are, walk it down to really eat it. They're good at bringing vegetation down to their level. Sheep are not as good. They, like, keep their heads on the ground. Yeah. They got what's right there, but goats are awesome at that. So um, how do you protect your trees that you don't want damaged by your livestock from the livestock? Yeah, um... You know, we we experiment with a lot of different ways. I'm uh, I'm not into high maintenance anything. So like animals, I, I can't do high maintenance animals like uh, dairy cows or dairy goats or whatever. It's just too much work for me. I uh, uh, not into that. So kind of the same way with trees. So we actually have a field. It was a corn field, and uh, we. Uh, took it out of production. We uh, worked with NRCS and uh, planted like native prairie, uh, and then we planted I don't know maybe 5,000 trees in this in this field. Um, and uh, I wasn't actually planning on grazing it, right? Uh, I was going to wait until the trees got big enough and then graze it. Well, I didn't plant any clover, but the first year. There was just in a, there must have been a huge seed bank in clover because it just the whole field just exploded in clover. I mean it was just a a total field of like knee high beautiful lush clover and my cows like their paddocks circle this field so they're like walking around it every day just like just checking it out you know like just seriously like holy cow I got to get in there and so finally I'm like well there's all this clover that's all they're gonna eat they're not gonna mess with my baby trees let's just see what happens. So I let all the cows in there. So it was like 50 head in a five acre field. Um, and you know, I watched them and they ate clover, ate clover, ate clover. I, I let them in there for probably like four or five hours. It was like all afternoon. And then by the end of the day, there were, there was still plenty of clover left, but I went in and got them out of there. And then the next day I went and walked through, walked up and down the rows and there was like one hazelnut that had been stepped on, hmm. uh, which ended up growing back, but nothing got eaten. So, I've kind of like saw that and then I've continued to sort of 
very uh, infrequently and at very low durations uh, graze it, you know, just for like an afternoon once or twice a year. Um, and it's worked great. And there has been almost zero, you know, mortality on the tree side. Now the soil was crap because it had been corn on corn for like 25 years. Uh, the, the neighbor who rented it couldn't fit his soybean combine through the gate, so we could only do corn. Uh, so he literally just in corn, 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 corn. And it was funny because he, we actually rented it to him when we first got it because I didn't have anything to do. I didn't even have a tractor yet. I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead and corn, corn it again. I was like, but don't you want to do soybeans? It's like I saw the yield last year. It was pathetic. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can't get my combine through there. So anyway, um, the soil is so poor, the trees are just like really struggling in there. Um, but actually, I think that having the animals in there in a pulsed way like that you know, we're getting the manure in there. We're getting the microbes. We're like rebuilding the soil, uh, and I think that's actually going to help the trees long term. Uh, and any short term disruption by like getting stepped on or laid on or even nibbled is is going to be marginal. Uh, it, 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 you know, in relation to the the soil boosting properties of having you know cow shit everywhere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is nothing that restores. An ecosystem like a room in it properly managed. I mean, there just yeah, isn't. Right. It, it's and, and people think that like so, it, grass will grow to a certain height, and it, it you know a lot of annual grasses or perennials will go dormant, and the, the top part dies, and it'll die back, and that a field can actually improve that way. And I guess if everything's right in time, it can. But I, I see a lot of vacant fields around here um, that that don't get any better. And, and our little three-acre farm with you know using ducks and geese uh, as a as a as basically an analog to larger animals, where the, it's not just the manure; it's that the the vegetation itself is being processed through the gut, that's creating the biology gets greener and greener every year. And and the the vacant fields next to us just stay real. I mean, this is tough. This is. When I hear you talk about a field of clover, I'd love to have that. <laughs> and if you've got some kind of species diversity in there to begin with, like if you've got mixed species of different heights and whatever, clovers and flowers and grasses, different kinds of grasses, if you don't graze it, what ends up happening is it's it's just like a forest. You know, it's 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 all shade dynamics. So what ends up happening is the grass that grows the tallest shades out everybody and then takes over, and you actually – lose a lot of species in a grassland by not grazing. So when I was in Madison trying to do restoration, well, the big thing for restoration in, in the Madison and in southern Wisconsin and uh, the Midwest is prairie restoration, so tall grass prairie. You know, so we the first tall grass prairie restoration in the world was in Madison. It was like Leopold's idea, Aldo Leopold. And so they planted like 300 species of native plants in this area that had been cropped. Uh, right in Madison, and it's still there today. It's the oldest prairie restoration in the world. Well, every single year, this this prairie, which started out with 300 plus species, loses species, and it's down to like 60 now. Wow! And they they don't graze it. You know, it's a grassland. And, you, and I talked to these ecologists, and I, and I was actually involved in the arboretum. I worked over there. I was kind of you know. They wouldn't let me make too many decisions because I was a little too radical. But I was always <laughs> like, "Come on, guys." This is a grassland. Bison grazed here. If you want 300 species, we need to have different species of ruminants grazing this thing. And they're like, oh, well, cattle aren't native, so we can't bring cattle in. Goats aren't native. We can't bring goats in. Sheep aren't native. It's like, are you kidding me? Ugh. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and here's the thing. Like, so 
show me a natural, healthy grassland without ruminants. Show yeah, me it one. One. There's, it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. That's right. And it can't. Grazers create grassland. Grasslands need grazers. And if you, know, if you lose your grazers, you lose your grassland. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. So what's next for, uh, for your farm, man? What, what are you going to be doing next, Peter? Oh, well, I mean, for our farm, just kind of doing the same thing. So we, when we first got our land, um, you know, we were, we were at Shepherd's Place. We knew we kind of had a decision, right? It's like you got a set amount of resources. Um, you're looking for land. You can either, we could either buy, say, 40 acres that had like a house and some buildings already on it, or we could go big and get a bigger chunk of land that didn't have any houses, right? Kind of for the same amount of money. Um, and we chose to go big. So we, we kind of knew that. Uh, so we actually, while we were at Shepherd's, we built a yurt out of a bunch of chestnut coppice. Uh, so when we bought the land, we put the yurt up and lived in that. And then we got pregnant. And so we needed something a little bit more solid than a yurt to raise a baby in. So I built a, a, a cabin, a small off-grid cabin with the trees on our property. We have a little bandsaw mill. And then... Um, that's where we're at now, and it's it's actually a good size. It works really well for where we're at right now, but we want to grow our family a little bit. So uh, our big project this coming year is we're going to be building a house. Um, so right now I'm out uh, surveying. We have a pine plantation that was planted about 60 years ago that's in desperate need of thinning. So we're pulling out a bunch of the pines, getting them started um, uh, on the on the mill, milling them out into big uh, posts and beams, and we're going to build a big timber frame house. Uh, so that's like our big year project. So the farm, we're not going to be doing too much new, kind of just uh, keeping it going. I mean, we're growing our, we're continuing to grow our customer base and, and growing our herd. We're about about 60% of where we where we can sustainably be in terms of our land base um, and, and our herd size. So we still got some growing to do both in our herd numbers and then obviously lockstep in that we need to grow our customer base. Um, but we've, We've been kind of steadily growing uh, at a pretty constant rate since we started. It's it's slow, but it's steady enough that it allows us to build up our herd kind of in lockstep with our growing customer base. So we'll just be we'll be doing our beef and pork and and uh, and lamb thing, and then uh, and then building a house. Very cool. So I've got some extra questions here. I jumped on our, our Zello channel this morning and, and mentioned you'd be on, and I got some questions from one guy. Um, maybe you can take a crack at it. It's a little different situation, uh, just so you know where he's coming from. His family's been ranching for 134 years in the Texas Panhandle. He's going to be taking over uh, cool. eventually. Uh, he's got 9,600 acres, and they run about 400 head. Uh, his first question is about vaccines. What, what do you do? Do you give vaccines? In my case, they have to give back leg vaccines because it lives in the uh, black leg vaccine because it lives in the soil. Yep. Yeah. Um, we don't have a sort of cut and dry policy in terms of uh, vaccines. We also have had black leg around here. All my neighbors do black leg vaccines. I'm not against it. I haven't done it yet. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean I won't. Um, Part of that's just because I'm lazy. Part of it's because I don't have great facilities yet. Uh, that's one of that's actually one of the projects we'll be doing this spring is building uh, some legitimate animal handling facilities, both for cattle and for sheep. Um, but uh, you know, I think in, in a situation like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with vaccinating. I wouldn't, you know, 
put a whole bunch of faith in it, like that's going to solve all your problems, but they're fairly cheap uh, and easy to administer, so uh, I'm not against. And you're not trying to be under an organic label. You're trying to naturally farm. Yeah, you know, we're, we everybody asks, like all my neighbors, like, oh, you guys are organic. They're, around here, it's like because there's Organic Valley close by, you're either organic and associated with Organic Valley or you're not. You're like I a conventional, you. like, you know, farmer. And people are like, well, and I'm always like, well, we're actually not organic. Um, I buy organic feed for our uh, pigs and chickens, and everything we do is essentially organic. We don't do antibiotics, you know, obviously, unless an animal is sick and about to die, in which case, of course, we give them antibiotics. See, and that's one of my problems with the organic program. So if I got a if I got a cow and, and she's a milk cow and she's caught herself on barbed wire and she's got an infection in her udder, I can treat that so effectively with antibiotics. And as far as USDA is concerned, that cow's never organic again. And to me, that just doesn't make any sense. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and, you know? and and it's and I I have no desire to be certified organic. I don't think it's going to help us in our marketing situation at all. Um, so we're so far beyond organic, it doesn't even uh, you know it doesn't. But yeah, it's common sense. It's like if you've got an animal that uh, you know is part of your system that you know our cows, we love our cows. You know we've had them for five years now. They're they're part of our family. If a cow gets sick. And it's something that's treatable with an antibiotic. Obviously, we're going to give them an antibiotic. Now, if I've got a steer that's getting ready to actually, we don't even castrate. So I've got we we you know we we slaughter a bull. So okay. if I've got a bull that's getting ready to go to market, like I got one that's going in next week, uh, and he gets sick today, um, now that gets a little trickier because the it stays in the meat for about a month or two, depending on what kind of antibiotic you use. So in that case. I would maybe, if it's life threatening, give him the antibiotic and then not slaughter him. Sure. And like you said, you know, you can. It's not like spinach that you have to harvest now or not. You know, I could I could wait fully into that. And we tell our customers we don't use antibiotics. We've never had to give antibiotics to a meat animal yeah. before. But if we did, it would probably be the situations like well. You know, the they say the antibiotic stays in the in the in the meat for a month, so we're going to give it six months. We're going to slaughter it. I'm not going to sell it to my customers. It's just going to be what we eat and what the interns eat, and you know what I give away to friends and family or whatever. I'd um, buy it from you. Not, I mean, as long as it's disclosed, I wouldn't have any problem with it. I mean, well, we we kind of take a similar approach here. We're a much smaller operation than you are, but a lot of our you know first time buyers, you know, are you guys organic? Nope, don't want to be. Come out yeah. here and look at what we do and make a decision for yourself. And when That's they right. look at the practices that you're you're using and they look at the feed that you're using and all, and, and they realize, well, you know, you, you, with eggs, right, there's a lot of people with sensitivities and to, to eggs. And, and one of the things that people start to realize over time with trying different things is going organic or even free range doesn't necessarily solve the problem if the bird's being fed soy because of the phytoestrogens in the soy. Right. So – the fact that we're feeding a, a, a feed that's not just non-GMO but, but non-soy is a lot more important to people than whether or not we have a sticker from the government because right. you can't find that somewhere else. So anyway, this guy has another question for you. He has actually three more. One is, is your ma website your main marketing technique for your grass-fed cattle? Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the portal that everybody goes through, Uh but, you know, we we have there's a couple in Madison, is which is our main market. Uh, there's a couple nonprofit organizations that produce 
uh, publication every year listing all the, the CSAs. So, you know, we list in there, we list in Eat Wild and a couple of the other bigger um, sort of clearinghouse uh, registries of grass-fed producers. Um, and that's pretty much it. Most of our growth, we've found that, you know, we put up flyers in the natural foods grocery stores and the co-ops and whatever. And I don't know, I think we've probably gotten a few customers that way, but most of it's been actually word of mouth. Um, so, yeah, I think kind of the, the way a website works really well in these, these farms and, and ranch businesses is when the person hears about you, their natural inclination is to check you out, you know, right. and, and then that site is a piece of the marketing portfolio rather than the marketing portfolio, because if they can't check you out, you don't even know that they wrote you off, right? And I think it's it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a, a window into your operation. And, and we get, definitely get business from people that, you know, Google Fort Worth Duck Eggs or something. I'm sure you sure, get yeah. from people that Google, you know, Wisconsin grass-fed beef or whatever. But I think far more of our customers are, they went to their chiropractor, they were dealing with nutritional issues. The chiropractor mentioned there's a place in Fort Worth you can get duck eggs. They right. went and looked for it, then they found the website. So they, they wouldn't have come to that site without kind of being pushed in that direction from some sort of marketing that's peripheral to it, but it's in trends, or it's incredibly important that that site be there when they go to find it, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, websites, I mean, this day and age, especially if you're trying to market direct, websites are incredibly important. I mean, you know, people want to know where their food comes from, and a website gives you an opportunity to tell your story in, in multimedia forms. I mean, you can write text, you can have pictures, you can post videos, um, and it allows us to keep in touch with our customers. We post recipes like every week we're posting new recipes um, because a lot of the thing when you're, we're trying to sell meat, right? And a, a lot of our customers are actually kind of like us. They're re recovering vegetarians or recovered vegetarians, you know, like they don't know how to cook meat. Like they're <laughs> interested in eating meat because they realize that grass-fed beef is actually really good for you. Yeah. Uh, they don't necessarily know how to cook it, so they get a you know uh, a shank or a you know uh, flank steak in their in their box, and it's like, well, what the heck do I do with that? So we have to do a lot of education. Uh, just like, well, here's how you cook a ham roast. Here's how you you know uh, sear your pork chops, and how, here's how to not overcook grass-fed beef because if you overcook yeah. grass-fed beef, you're going to have a bad meal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the website is is awesome and to have a one central node to to have all that material, and then to have a place for people to actually, you know, I see a lot of farm websites that I just like, you know, shake my head. It's like, oh, you're so close. <laughs> you know, you could be, you know, actually converting sales here. You could actually be selling, but you don't even have your phone number on here. Like, yeah. You know, hey, yeah. To like, make any kind of deal happen. So like having a, a mechanism for people that like they read your story, they're into it, they want to support you, they, they're, they're, they're sold. And then, okay, and then what? How do you convert? How them? to buy from us, right? Because not everybody's like, we don't ship. We don't right. ship. We don't deliver. Right, we just don't because we're we're located in a place where we feel like if you want to do business with us, you can come pick it up. We do occasionally with regular customers, like if my wife's going somewhere anywhere, they'll meet and, and, and drop stuff off. But for the size of business that we're doing, we you, you come to the farm and you buy, and it keeps us clean with the state as a small producer. We don't need any license or nothing like that. Um, so we're, you're not going to click and buy on our site, but it tells you how to buy. So right. however you do business, like I think that's incredibly important to have like that trigger there that's easy to find. 
Because I have literally been frustrated on websites and pulled my wallet out and like shoved it at the screen and like just out of frustration, like please take my money. How how in the world can I possibly do business with you if you won't tell me? <laughs> exactly. And a lot of and a lot of meat producers, like in rural areas, it's pretty common to buy and sell meat by the half and the quarter. Yeah. And so a lot of meat producers kind of assume that potential customers know what that means and know yeah. what hanging weight means yeah. and know what a cut sheet means. Um, and I and a lot of people in rural areas obviously do know what that a lot of that stuff means. But you talk to people in urban areas that are that are interested in buying grass fed beef, and you're like, oh yeah. Uh, you can buy a quarter for four fifty a pound hanging weight, and you can fill out your cut sheet at the processor, and they're just like, uh, "What? I, I don't know what any of that means." Yeah, you just said gobbledygook, goo goo gop, right? And, and and then like that's a that's a marketing thing. You don't use words your market doesn't understand. And, and the guy out in the rural area that knows everything you just said probably isn't on your website. He either knows somebody or he's raising his right. own. That's right. So you have to market to the unknowing. So I'm going to kind of combine his last two questions here because I, I know the basic answer is going to be no, I don't. Because um, he's asking if you have a commercial buyer for grass-fed beef. He feels he would have to have one to make the numbers work. And, you know, he, he's asking basically on his scale, again, 9,600 acres, 400 cow herd, is what you're doing even possible? And I guess kind of directing that a little bit, I would start thinking about, well, let's break off a piece of it first. Yeah, I mean, you got a couple of options, um, but uh, I mean, yeah, part of it's possible. I mean, in, in an operation of that size and scale, you need to have a wholesale buyer. So yeah. we could do that. There is a Wisconsin grass-fed beef cooperative that uh, buys uh, uh, grass-finished beefs uh, and then markets them throughout the state. Uh, it's a great organization. Uh, we've looked into joining it. The, the price that the farmer gets is... Uh, you know, just a hair better than the conventional market. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's better. If you're, if you're already a conventional producer, it's a good option. Uh, but if you're coming from my perspective, which is already selling everything, uh, direct, uh, at a higher margin, then it doesn't make sense to go backwards. Now, if we were to scale up and our neighbors were to give us their thousand acres and we were to jump up to say running a hundred or two hundred head of cows, then I would need a wholesale market. Uh, but uh, we're, at our scale, we can do 100% direct, and the margins are a lot better, and it makes a lot more sense. Uh, but in his context, uh, with that size of acreage, you know, I don't know how, what kind of population density is around there. I don't know, very big ones. And not Texas Panhandle, no, it's, it's not yeah. heavy. Yeah. So it's going to have to be some kind, unless he's going to be dry, willing to drive a lot further uh, you know, and, and figure some way to, to do you know, kind of big orders you know, say, come to Dallas once a year with a freaking semi-load full of beef. Um, or create some sort of a partnership, you know, where there's, yeah, like you're saying, like, like so somebody else could actually take care of the, you know, the Dallas or the, the Austin market or something like that. And, right. So, yeah, yeah, you'd have to find a third-party, yeah. uh, you know, wholesale. And then you got to share margin because I'm not driving a rig for That's free, right? You know, so. Yep. Yeah, but at that scale, then you can you can afford to have a lower margin. So yeah, I mean that's the way economics works. Yeah, and there's certainly a demand. I mean, I don't think there's any short shortness in demand for for pastured po poultry, pork, and beef and lamb. I, I just don't think that yeah, that shortage doesn't exist. 
Yeah, uh, my my dad actually lives in Dallas, and you know, like he knows lots of people looking for grass fed beef, and it's just hard to find down there. It but is. Here, it's it's not that way at all. I mean, you can get there's like four different brands of grass fed beef in every you know grocery store, but uh, um, yeah, it, not every part of the country is like that. Well, we don't have the the green fields that you do either. That you know, we, it's it's a different climate, and it's it's a lot more difficult. And that's right. And that gets me to one of the, you know, I, I you know, as an ecologist, I, I think you know, in, in large, long time frames and, and at bigger scales. And like my dream would be to partner with, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to be feeding cows hay in Wisconsin in the winter. Like no. it, it doesn't make sense for animals, for livestock to even be in this part of the country in the winter. Um, now, because of fossil fuels and subsidies, like we can, we make it work uh, because, you know, I can buy, uh, right now I'm buying, uh, super high quality second cut alfalfa for you know 50 bucks a ton like super 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 cheap wow uh, but you know that's not sustainable in the long term that's you know that's only sustainable with cheap uh cheap fuel um but uh what i would love to see is partnerships where the cow calf producers are all in the south texas uh, and then the finishers are all up north and we're just trucking, uh, calves up north to finish out on our like super lush green grass in the summertime. And then half the beef ends up going back down to, to southern markets and the other half stays up. Um, I would love to partner with a, a, a southern farm, ship all my cows down there. I don't need to be raising cows. All I need to be doing is finishing steers. Mm-hmm. On- beautiful lush grass from May to uh, October. And, and that's quite valid because here, like, this is good grazing time right now here, right? Yeah, I mean, it right. rains. It, it's a relatively temperate uh, climate yep. in the winter. So yep. right now, and it's not even so much now, it's about it's about mid-February you'll start to see, even right here in this, like the outskirts of the city, all these green fields will be full of Angus. And and they'll be there till about May, and it's 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 most of it's finishing is what they'll do because all those fields need some maintenance, but those same fields cannot support cattle through our summers. They can't do it. It's right. a that's right. Yep, yep. So they could ship them up here. Yeah, yeah. And then you guys, you guys, you know, we could if you sink it out to the right when you're you know when you're moving them around, you could sink it out to the finishing being kind of perfect against the season. So that's that's a cool idea. It's something that. It's a someday thing, right? For now, it's got to be everybody figures out how to do what they can with what they have. That's right. And the, 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 the big question that I've been thinking about is like how to do it on a large scale involving like thousands of people all coordinating. And how do you do that without involving the state? <laughs> That's the hard part right there. <laughs> right. Especially because that used to, so the second you go across a state line, yeah. the federal government by proxy gets involved, right? There's okay. a, there's a lot of things you can do inside Wisconsin or I can do inside Texas that even if you deal with the state, we deal with the lowercase state, right? Not the uppercase. Right. But when you right. go across a state boundary, boy, that's, that's a whole new world. Anyway, how can people learn more about what you're doing? Check out your site, what have you. What, what site is that? Yeah, so uh, our website is mastodonvalleyfarm.com. Uh, we... That's where we have kind of our main events. Some of the other things we do, we run a, uh, a couple courses every year. We do a permaculture design course. Uh, we bring in folks like Mark Shepard and Grant Schultz. We work with a, a, an awesome permaculture designer in uh, Minneapolis, Lindsay Rabin. She does a lot of broad acre stuff. Um, uh, Liza Greenman's going to be with us this year. So our, our PDC will be in June. 
Um, I also do so, a little bit of consulting, but honestly, I don't have very much time for that these days. Um, but yeah, uh, Mascon Valley Farm, you can uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. We, uh, we, we try to post, uh, keep everybody afloat of what's going on. So what's the deal there with the Mastodon? Do you guys uh, ranch in Mastodons uh, sometime soon through uh, bringing them back from the, the Paleolithic era or something like that? One day, one day, um, <laughs> along with a lot of other animals. You know, I, uh, I was a you know, plant ecologist for a long time. And, you know, you look at how our plants behave, and, and it doesn't really make sense. It's like, you know, we had our oak savannas here, and uh, they were our native ecosystem, yet – If you let a piece of land go, it doesn't turn into oak savanna. It turns into a, like a maple forest. Uh, we have very humid environment here. It just turns into forest, forest, forest. You're constantly beating back forest. So like how the hell was it oak savanna for the last 20 million years? Like the records show. And it's like, well, there are big freaking animals eating that forest all the time. Uh, and so the biggest one around here was the mastodon. There's, uh, there was a big skeleton pulled out in a, in a flood. Uh, about 80 years ago, just a few miles from our farm, um, actually was found with a, a, uh, an arrowhead in its rib cage. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so they were the keystone species for about 17 million years uh, in the sort of in eastern uh, Midwest in North America. Uh, and they ate trees, like big trees. Lots, I mean, just imagine, like, we, our landscape is you know, very hilly uh, and there's big hills and valleys. And I just imagine, like, you're looking out over this broad valley with a trout stream kind of meandering down it, just, like, imagining a herd of, like, 500 mastodons walking down this valley. It's like, holy crap. You know, how much how much trees did those guys eat, you know? And, like, here I am out here with my chainsaw trying to cut these trees down. It's like, I just need a herd of mastodons to come um, take care of all this for me. But and it wasn't just mastodons. I mean, we had camels and horses and giant i mean beavers the size of a volkswagen bug like yep. those guys i mean even these little beavers can take down a pretty big tree imagine like one that's you know 20 times the size um <laughs> so anyway yeah i mean our our goal is sort of restoring this highly functional ecosystem that has lots of animals uh, eating lots of vegetation uh and the more vegetation you eat the more vegetation you grow so you're actually like ramping up the productivity of your ecosystem the more grazing that happens in it uh You know, it kind of gets like Charles Darwin when he went to uh, South, uh, you know, to uh, South Africa and the Serengeti and saw the savannas there. And he was like, he, he didn't see any vegetation. It was gone. I mean, it was just like a lawn everywhere. Yet there were these giant herds of animals. And he's like, how does this work? And it's like, well, it all gets eaten. Yeah. <laughs> and, it and then it grows back. Because you know? as long as there's someplace else to go with more, when they're done eating here, they go there. That's right. And as long as it takes them, like, there's enough in the balance in the in the system that it takes them a certain amount of time to get back. There's more of it by the time they come back, and it's this pulsing cycle. It's everything we mimic as as basically grass based and pasture based farmers. It's it, it, yeah. it, no matter whether we're doing it with with poultry or or mid sized ruminants or large ruminants. And wouldn't it be cool though to have a mastodon operation and be selling a you know an eighth of mastodon instead of quarter beef that's <laughs> a, a lot of meat is. i mean that's a lot of meat <laughs> yeah, that's a, a 30 second or something i imagine that uh, mastodon must have tasted pretty good yeah yeah there were quite a few found with arrowheads man well hey man i've had a ball talking to you today Uh, I wish you the best going forward, and if you, if you want to come back and hang out with us again, you know how to do it. Just fill out the guest form. We'll have you back anytime, Peter. 
Cool, man. Great talking to you, Jack. Great interview. Great guy. Doing good stuff. That's how I would sum that time with Peter up. Anyway, if you enjoyed this interview and if you enjoy the Survival Podcast and you want to help support us, you know, one of the really easy ways to do that is to just think about what you're doing when you're going to buy something from Amazon anyway. Instead of going to Amazon.com, go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, C-O-M. When you get there, just click a link and go to Amazon. You'll see a link. It says click here. And you click that link and you go to Amazon. You find and buy your stuff and you've just supported our work and you've put no real effort and no real money into it. It doesn't cost you anything any different. It doesn't change when you get your stuff. It's the same Amazon experience you always get. You just go to a different page first. So it takes you a couple seconds. And if you like the show and the couple hours a day we put into producing it, and really a couple hours we produce, you know, put into like recording it, we I put in five, six, seven hours a day sometimes uh, into what I do to produce these shows. If you could give back a couple seconds of your time before you do your shopping on Amazon, That would be a great way to help us out. Um, another thing we always do with T-SPAS, though, is we do an item of the day. Today we continue uh, our project for early 2017 to help everybody out there that wants to, that doesn't have one, put together a basic gunsmithing and maintenance kit. Uh, a couple weeks ago I brought you a really great punch set so you can you know, knock out pins and things like that. Then last week I brought you a, a, a set of uh, a hammers, a ball-peen hammers, the two ounce and four ounce being the most important ones, the two ounce being the one you use all the time. And uh, today what I'm bringing you is probably, when I'm not using the two ounce hammer, the thing that I use most with gunsmithing and with other stuff too, is a product made by Vaughn. It's the SF-12 saw-faced hammer. I've had mine for 10 years, 10 years. And I did a little video in my review today, and you can take a look at it. It looks brand new. Now, I'm not a professional gunsmith. I use it probably six to 12 times a year, but multiply that, you know, let's say an average of 10 and multiply that by 10 times. That's a hundred uses of that hammer over a decade. And it looks like freaking brand new. Why? Quality American made hand tool. Uh, I know there's people out there that want to buy American for everything. And there's some things we just don't do that great anymore. There's some things we just don't do anymore. Um, but when it comes to making hand tools, I, I still believe the best hand tools are made right here in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. You tell when you pick it up, that's an American-made tool. Probably the only people that are close, maybe Germany and Sweden, make really good hand tools, too. Uh, Austria, I guess, makes some pretty good specialized tools that, that we don't make, like scythes and things like that. Anyway, uh, the Vaughn uh, SF-12, is it's got a hard plastic and a rubber face. And you might imagine it's for, for, for knocking things loose when you don't want to mar the surface. Uh, and it, it, for guns, that's really critical. But for a lot of things, I end up you know, going to my gun kit and getting this when I need to do something like that. Um, again, 10 years, still here. Buy once, cry once, 24 bucks. Now, there's another hammer that I keep getting mentions of when I'm doing these posts about um, uh, gun kits. And it's a multi-tip hammer. I have a link in the review. My opinion of it is it's a decent tool. It's not as good as this. And if you own this, you probably won't use it very much. I have one. You know where it is? It's in my range bag. So if I'm at the range and I need, if something's all jammed up or whatever, and I haven't brought my big kit, which a lot of times I don't, I have it as a backup. It's not a bad tool. It's about 13 bucks. It's not as good a tool as this. And if you have this, you probably will never use it. That's why mine's in my range bag. However, if you want that one, get the one in my link. Not just so you buy through my link, 
but because there's two multi-tip hammers that are really popular on Amazon. One is the wooden handle, and it's a good hammer, okay? For $13, bucks, it's a damn good hammer. The other one's $12. Bucks. It's by a company called Militaria, and it's a piece of shit. It has a metal versus a wooden handle, and sooner or later, the handle always comes loose, and the head wobbles and falls the hell off because it's a cheap piece of crap. If you want a multi-tip, get the other one with the wooden handle. You can find a link there, and it's not a bad hammer. And if you need a hammer and you want to save some money, it would be what I would recommend second to this one. Some people would say you need a brass hammer in the future. We'll have a small brass hammer added to the kit. We're going to wait a long time to do that, though, because it ain't that critical if you have the other stuff that I've recommended so far. Remember, we're building a kit this year as part of T-SPAS for the hobbyist gunsmith who wants to be able to take their guns apart, do a trigger drop, maybe do an AR upper build, right? But one, not 20, not 50, not 100 of them a year. This is for the average guy like me. And that's what I'm trying to help you guys set up with your gun cleaning and maintenance and gunsmithing stuff. Check it out today. Again, the Vaughn SF12. And I'll tell you how good a tool this is. When I post Patrick Rohrman from MT Knives, never comments on my stuff on Facebook about item of the day. He just doesn't. It's just not something that I guess, you know, he spends his time waiting for. When I posted this, his comment was, that's a damn good one. Patrick knows this tool, too, and Patrick does make a living with his tools. So check it out, the Vaughn SF12, and check out tspaz.com when you're going to shop on Amazon. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is the number one uh, Billboard uh, top hit for the year 1943. It's a song from the Mills Brothers, and it's called Paper Doll. And it's uh, it, it's unique. There's a, a line that... Um, Alex Shrugged mentioned uh, on it, on TSP Wiki, I'd rather have a paper doll than a real live girl. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. But when you listen to the song, what he's saying is women are not faithful to him. They always go off with some other guy, and he's tired of getting his heart broke. I, I don't know this. I don't know this. But I'm guessing it may have something to do with some of the uh, the first more modern Dear John letters going to uh, troops overseas. And the guy's gone, and you know she doesn't know if he's coming back. And I sure know that even during peacetime, I saw a lot of guys get a lot of Dear John letters in uh, the military. And uh, it's one of those things that's hard for people to deal with, especially if they're not expecting it. And, and that may be why. I'm not really sure, but... Uh, This song sounds like the time that it's from, and uh, it's what America was thinking and America was listening to as war raged in the Pacific and in Europe. And, and, and literally millions of men were away from home fighting a true evil, some in, in, in a blood and guts way and some in an administrative way and some right here at home because you just don't know whether there's going to be an invasion or not. And people were driving around with the tops of their, their headlights and their cars painted black uh, in certain cities because that was less likely to have a signature so a bomber would see them if we did get attacked by the Japanese, specifically in the Pacific. That's where we were more concerned about it because they had more uh, capabilities from a carrier standpoint. Yeah, that's what was going on. And yet songs like this were what people listened to. It makes me think about 9-11 and what was one of the things that people did so frequently at, right after 9-11. They put on old shows like I Love Lucy. 
I wonder if there's something to that. Anyway, try to think about the year 1943 and being an American, whether a GI in Europe or the Pacific or a sailor on a ship in the Pacific, or someone at home wondering if the person you love was ever going to come home. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm gonna buy a paper doll that I can call my own A doll that other fellows cannot steal And then the flirty, flirty guys With their flirty, flirty eyes Will have to flirt with dollies that are real When I come home at night, she will be waiting. She'll be the truest doll in all this world. I'd rather have a paper doll to call my own than have a fickle-minded real-life girl. I guess I had a million dolls or more I guess I played the dog game for and all I just quarreled with Sue That's why I'm blue She's gone away and left me Just like all dolls do I'll tell you boys it's tough to be alone And it's tough to love a doll that's not your own I'm through with all of them I'll never fall again Say, boy, what you gonna do? I'm gonna buy a paper doll that I can call my own A doll that other fellows cannot steal And then the flirty, flirty guys With their flirty, flirty eyes Will have to flirt with dollies that are real When I come home at night She will be waiting She'll be the truest doll In all this world I'd rather have a paper doll To call my own Than have a fickle-minded real-life girl